The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 2013, author and translator Tom Holland wrote, quote, Herodotus is the most entertaining of historians. Indeed, he is as entertaining as anyone who has ever written, historian or not. His great work is many things. The first example of nonfiction, the text that underlies the entire discipline of history, the most important source of information we have for a vital episode in human affairs. But it is, above all, a treasure trove. The father of history he may be, but he is also much more than that. End quote. But who was this person Herodotus? What do we know about him and his life? What was his project, and did he succeed? And is he worth reading today? Mike Palindrome joins us to make the case for Herodotus today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. How are you? It's Thanksgiving week here at the History of Literature, which means we are feeling good, feeling festive, feeling thankful, even though this is a year where we in the United States celebrating our Thanksgiving have less community than usual due to the pandemic. Perhaps that has made me thankful for you, dear listeners, even more than usual. Speaking of dear listeners, we'll have some listener email today, at least one. We have a good one lined up, as usual. The listener email, it's listener emails we get are simply extraordinary. The highlight of my days, people. The highlight of my days. That and actually doing the show, at least the recording of it. I still like talking. <laughs> Other parts of it are a little more of a drag, but I like thinking and talking and hearing from you where you are, what you're reading, what you've read, how it all resonated with you. To me, that is the history of literature. It's that battery between an author and a reader and the electricity between two minds. In a way, it doesn't matter if I'm part of that or not. Maybe I help put the two together sometimes. And today, Mike will help with uh, help us with that. Should we read Herodotus? It's a long book. Herodotus is known for his lies or his tall tales as much as for his history. And there are plenty of other books to read. Mike will swing by with five reasons for why we should read Herodotus. We'll hear him out and offer some thoughts of our own. So let's do this. We'll start with a quick sketch of Herodotus to get you oriented, then... Hear our listener email, then hear Mike's reasons for Herodotus, and then we will all head off into the kitchen to cook up a feast, whether that's for one or for several this year. Herodotus's histories begins like this, quote, Herodotus of Halicarnassus hereby publishes the results of his inquiries, hoping to do two things, to preserve the memory of the past by putting on record the astonishing achievements both of the Greek and the non-Greek peoples, and, more particularly, to show how the two races came into conflict. End quote. He was a man possessed by curiosity, Herodotus, born in Halicarnassus, which was in what we now know as Turkey. 
We don't know much about his life. Most of what we know comes from him. He seems to have come from a wealthy, aristocratic family, a family rich enough to pay for his education anyway. He wrote in Greek, Ionian Greek, and was well-read. He also had the means to travel, seemingly at will, to make the inquiries to go where his nose led him. And then he wrote it all down. That's about all we know. Some people say that he served in the army, but this is speculation, I think, mainly because he describes battles well and often takes the point of view of a foot soldier. He may have served in the army. Significantly, he was not from Athens, and many of his early critics were Athenians who thought he was biased, in particular that he didn't properly credit the right families in his account of the Battle of Marathon of 490 BC, which, which was a great source of honor and glory for the Greeks. They beat the Persians in that year at that battle, and honor was due to them for this. But which Greeks had sacrificed and who deserved all that glory? The Athenians did not agree with Herodotus in his account kind of stuck in their craw. <laughs> and they kind of stuck it to Herodotus. Their early criticism of him kind of stuck with him. So anyway, that's what we sort of have from Herodotus. So the reputation that's been handed down, some valuable history, some val- valuable accounts, some very good storytelling, and yet some tall tales as well, some exaggerations and lies. Cicero called him the father of history, and of course we also know him today as the father of lies. Those two nicknames have come down together in parallel. There's truth to both of them, I suppose, although lies maybe suggests that he was trying to deceive us, and I don't think that's quite accurate. I think he was conveying what he could, partially sorting out truth from legend and partially leaving the sorting out to us. He wasn't going to leave a story on the cutting room floor if it had some value, whether that was as entertainment or enlightenment. If people were telling these stories, there was some truth to them. Even if they weren't true, it was true that people were telling them, which has got its own kind of value. Sometimes Herodotus was wrong, but that's been our project to sort him out, too. He's got a project. Here's Herodotus's project. It's to talk about the Greeks and the barbarians both and to explain the cultures as best he can. The cultures are at war, and some understanding is interesting, and the lack of understanding is also interesting. What shared myths or stories unite the two? What drives them apart? What happened to each? How did they get how did they get to where they are? What do they believe? What do they value? How do they think and what makes them think what they do? It's a fascinating project, and the stakes were high. In four eighty BC there was a full scale invasion of Greece by the king of Persia, Xerxes, who had a reputed army of five million soldiers, the most powerful force on the planet, and the Greeks held their own. Those Greeks held their own, astonishingly, which changed the history of the world, frankly. But that's not all Herodotus wanted to explore. He looked into other cultures, he explored geography, he was interested in animals, 
and creatures and how things worked. Government. He asked questions and wrote down the answers he received, organizing it into a narrative of sorts. One of the first long-form nonfiction works we have, maybe the first work of nonfiction. Tom Holland thinks so. Herodotus died around 425 B.C. A few centuries later, Cicero gave him that nickname, the father of history, although he had always been known as being not quite reliable. Even his contemporaries thought that. And Thucydides, this is good, Thucydides wrote this when he wrote his own history, which came right on the heels of Herodotus. He did not, it did not take long for a second great historian to spring up, one who took his own approach. His aim of his famous work was slightly different. His was about the Peloponnesian War, Athenians at Spartans. More about that than the Persian War, which had been Herodotus's focus. But Thucydides clearly had Herodotus in mind when he set forth his own historical credo. Quote, the absence of an element of romance in my account of what happened may well make it less attractive to hear, but all who want to attain a clear point of view of the past and also of like or nearly like events, which, human nature being what it is, will probably occur, occur in the future, if these people consider my work useful, I shall be content. It is written to be a possession of lasting value not a work competing for an immediate hearing, end quote. You can hear, you can hear what he's trying to get at there, lasting value. He's saying, I'm going to be the grown-up. I'm going to get things right. I'm going to have, offer good advice. I'm not going to fill your minds with those wild tales like that other historian. I'm not doing this for entertainment value. I'm not trying to write a bestseller. I'm trying to write an enduring work. But does Herodotus have some lasting value? Is he just a footnote? The one who came before Thucydides? Is Thucydides the true first historian and Herodotus is more of an anomaly? Well, first of all, we should say Herodotus wasn't exactly the first person to write a history. He had a few predecessors who wrote some smaller and more localized works, but his is the biggest one to have survived. His was the biggest project. His was the one that was most read. Even Thucydides, who covered some of the same territory, but also had a different set of concerns and a different approach, as I said, he kind of shows us the value of Herodotus. Even though he himself probably wouldn't have acknowledged it fully, Thucydides writes about war. And pretty much that's it. He didn't reach into the other areas that Herodotus did. He attempted to be objective, and he comes across as much more cautious. Herodotus passes along what he's heard, reserving his judgment, even when what he's heard is clearly ridiculous. But how or why is it ridiculous? Who says? That's the joy of Herodotus. The sheer storytelling involved, but now I'm getting into the territory we're going to cover with Mike. So, I'll hold off on that, except to say this. Herodotus is our only source for a lot of what he talks about, and he's our best source for a lot of those things. We owe him, and there's value in reading him for fun or for entertainment or to get a flavor of history, even if it's not totally reliable. You can read him, take what you want, and if something bothers you, if you think, did that really happen? 
Well, sometimes you can skip over it. It doesn't bother you too much. And sometimes you want to dig deeper, and then you can look it up and see if it's been proven or disproven. What do Herodotus's defenders say on this or that point? Have the archaeologists located it, and have they been able to prove or disprove it? Has it been confirmed elsewhere in other accounts? Does it defy logic? Does it defy everything we know about the people that are being described? Is there speculation as to what he might have been talking about instead? In a sense, Herodotus turns us all into historians, assessing sources, evaluating evidence, asking follow-up questions, and learning more about what interests us and what seems especially important, whether that's how the Egyptians treated their cats or why the Greeks were fighting the Persians. Herodotus may be the father of history, but we are all of its children. Let's turn to some emails, or at least one, I guess. This one comes from Maria. Subject, hi, Jack. Dear Jack, I have been toying with the idea of writing to you for a few months. Well, possibly since I first discovered your podcast at the beginning of the pandemic. I think it's because your friendly voice has been accompanying me every day since all of it started, and so I do feel close and grateful to you. I hope you don't mind if I tell you a bit about myself to get to my point, which is how much I love your podcast. I am a Spanish postgraduate of English and American Studies. I didn't enroll myself in this degree for love, but by a process of elimination. What do I love in life? Many things, but I am not passionate about anything in particular. What is the thing that I want to know more of, the thing that has always been with me, the thing that I would be most proud to be an expert on? The answer had to be books, literature. I will go and do just that then. I chose to do my degree in English and not Spanish because I also wanted to travel, which I did. So I won. I got life right. But did I really? I followed my own intuition against the advice of parents and siblings who did useful degrees and are extremely employable individuals. You won't be able to find a good job with that degree. They said, it is a waste of time. They said, they would roll their eyes at the prospect of having me at the Faculty of Humanities wasting time and money for years and years. Well, I am in my mid-thirties now, and I can look at this situation from the other side. Were they right? Did I find a good job where I could put my university title to good use? Was it a waste of time? The answer to all of these is a big no. None of it. I didn't have the money or moral strength to continue my studies and do a PhD, which was always a dream of mine. So I packed up my suitcase, moved to England, and years later I found myself a job and a new useful career path, which I must admit I am enjoying quite a bit. And I become more employable each year. At 35, I got to the same place that I could have got myself at 23. But was the longer road worth it? Absolutely. The longer road was pure life to me. I will probably have less income than if I had taken the shortcut to usefulness, of course. But inadvertently to me at the time, I built my own self in my head. And that sets me free. 
I feel that I can do difficult things, learn new things, change. Honestly, I would do it all again if I could. Unfortunately, this change, moving to England and deciding that enough was enough, I was going to become useful, brought about great confusion and fear. I stopped reading, questioning things, exploring the other side of things and my own mind. I stopped being myself and became someone else. I was very practical, thoughtless, and hollow. I didn't realize what was missing in me. I thought I had just moved on. A couple of years ago, I planned a weekend trip to Haworth with my family. Or, I'm sorry, with my husband. Haworth is very near my town, and I take this fact as a gift from heaven. What was going to be just a little getaway turned out to be a full-on wake-up call. Something inside moved and said to me so clearly, Hey, you have been absent for a while. This is you. This is your stuff. This speaks to your soul. Remember who you are. That same night at the hotel, I started reading the works and life of Anne Bronte, who was almost unknown to me at the time, What an experience that was. Through the discovery of Anne Bronte, I rediscovered the pathway to myself. I felt things I hadn't felt in a long time, and I understood I could feel at home again in my own skin. Anne, of course, is a great friend of mine now. This long story is just to tell you, and to acknowledge it myself, that literature is my refuge and part of who I am. I am no expert. I can be a lazy reader. I just know what I know. And what I know, I love with passion. When I discovered your podcast back in April, I was very lost, worried, nervous, all of it. So I turned to literature again. Your podcast popped up on my search. And oh, Jack, the sound of your voice on that horrible first lockdown walk was a balm. And you have been with me ever since. I am learning so much from you. I have discovered authors I didn't know, facts, ideas, points of view. Other times I jokingly feel very clever when you explain things I already know. I have bought books for me, presents for others based on your podcast, and I often turn to your much-needed, snobbery-free approach for comfort. You and the amazing Mike are a well of knowledge, and yet you are humble and generous. What a treat for your listeners. Thank you for being there. I wish you all the best. And I hope there are a thousand more podcasts still to come. I am sure I will need them all. Love, Maria. Oh, Maria. Maria, Maria. What a gorgeous email. I barely have words to describe it. What a journey you have been on with literature right there beside you all the way. And then to know that the podcast has been a part of it is uh, humbling, flattering. These words of yours just chime. I am no expert. I can be a lazy reader. I just know what I know. And what I know, I love with passion. We can't ask for much more than that, can we? Maria, thank you so much for the email. You're having a beautiful life. I hope it continues for a long and beautiful time. 
<laughs> See how I'm fumbling for words here? A long and beautiful time. Ah, oh, good luck to you. Mike Palindrome makes the case for Herodotus after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here today to talk about an even older friend, if we can call him a friend, that ancient raconteur, perhaps the world's first historian, Herodotus. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. So, Mike, Herodotus is one of the stops on your new endeavor to read and tweet about a big book with a bunch of people. Uh, Tell us about these Twitter book clubs that you've been doing. So it's there's so much to read, but it, there, there definitely is a consensus on book Twitter, it, it, hashtag book Twitter, mm-hmm. about trying to read important books. Um, there, there's like a William Gaddis book yeah. reading club. So there's this real appetite for tackling big books. Mm-hmm. So after we finished War and Peace and Anna Karenina and some people were reading Crime and Punishment, I just felt like we should dig, reach back to and try to read something that we would never normally read unless we were in school, mm-hmm. in grad school or undergrad. And everyone just wanted to read Herodotus. Mm. So you don't? Yeah. Was it your idea or other people's? I don't remember. I think somebody said that. Uh, how about we read some, you know, Aristotle or maybe mm. like a Plato, yeah, uh, a dialogue, and then. You know, it just built up the steam where they were like, let's do her out of this. Yeah, right. That is kind of that sweet spot of one that maybe you haven't read in a while or you wouldn't quite pick up, but yet it's always kind of there as one that, that you always sort of wished you had read. Yeah, I mean, some 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 of the people had already read him, but it had been 20, 30 years. Yeah, that would be me. So. Although, uh, <laughs> so I didn't read him this time. Let's see. So I haven't really read him since grad school. 
And part of me remembers loving the book, but feeling a little frustrated. I think I might have approached it wrong. Do you come mm. at it as a work of history or a work of literature? Probably more um, a work of literature. Yeah. Okay. It, it felt to me like a, a weird memoir, um, <laughs> journal. And I, I think that that's what really drew me in and drew mm -hmm. a lot of people in is that his voice yeah. is so fresh, but it's also very flawed. He says stuff like, you know, don't hold me to it or while I'm at it or this this person had this story and he never holds back. He calls somebody like calling someone an idiot or a moron or. Yeah. And there's just something, you know, people call him the father of history and also the father of lies. Yeah. Yeah. That I think that really kept me going because sometimes the geography and the names of <laughs> different tribes and cities, it was overwhelming. <laughs> right. But you like the personality that was kind of coming through and this wavering between I'm just presenting to you what I hear. Uh, his defenders will say that he's kind of careful, at least some of the time, to make it clear that he's just relaying what he's been told. He's not claiming that it's true or factual, but that it's a story that he's been told. And in that sense, it's sort of like an ethnography or a, a collection of folktales or myths or something. It's a mistake, his defenders would say, to view him as someone who's attempting to be a fact-based historian. Yeah, I mean, I think that also the, you know, what's ties into that is that the format, there's just so much dialogue. Mm. There's so much like here's what I want to say, here's what these, you know, these two um, leaders talked about. And like, how would he have known Darius's discussions with his chief advisors that went on for 15 pages? I mean, there's clearly, <laughs> <laughs> there's clearly some literary, you know, uh, skill involved. Yeah. Right, and right. There was this trust and you felt good about reading it that you know if there was some dry paragraphs pages he would then return to an incredibly colorful story mm, right one one person joked like if anybody was following this hashtag uh herodotus together they would be so confused <laughs> <laughs> and you read in chunks of what 12 or 15 pages or something per day we did 10 we did 10 pages 10 pages we, of herodotus we, per day I think part of the deal was a lot of people have, you know, during COVID, it seems like people are reading more books at the same time. That's my mm, sense. Yeah. Well, the whole project reminds me of the college experience or the idealized college experience where everyone is reading Smith and Marx right. and Thucydides at more or less the same time. And so you can have conversations at the breakfast table or in the dorm lounge or wherever only... You guys are having that conversation with people all over the world, and the reading is very targeted, even more than in college, where it's it's specific pages on a specific day, which is it's an amazing idea. Have you been? I guess you've been enjoying it. it it's it's addictive, mm. you know, because yeah. and because you, you feel like you're online and you're on Twitter, but it's educational. Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel mindless. Because you're not just saying like, you know, F you or like, I agree with you. Yeah. You know, someone is posting about, you know, how entrail 
you know, reading and Oracle appealing to the oracles, you know, how those two developed side by side and one pulled ahead. And I mean, it's just, it's the format of Twitter. It's great that it's, they expanded it. I think originally used to be like 115 characters and now it's like 250 Mm -hmm. because people really do. I, I liken this to the exact opposite of people who forward emails to me with links where they haven't read the article or they've read it, but they just forward it to me. Mm, right. And I just think like, you know, why not try to take a stab at ma- appealing to me mm. like Twitter and say like, this is what interests me or yeah. this is the most interesting thing. Instead, you know, people just forward stuff to me to the point where I just like delete it. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I told my sister, like if you can't tell me what you liked about this, <laughs> I'm just going to delete it. <laughs> Or call me and tell me about it because I'm certainly not going to read this article. Like you read it, like help me out. Right. Twitter is like the exact opposite. People are just vying, competing with each other to appeal to you. Yeah. So I think it's perfect for difficult books because, you know, difficult books, people are afraid to say anything, Mm -hmm. but Twitter just opens the doors. Yeah. And it just allows you to say anything. Yeah, right. Okay, well, let's translate that a little bit to the podcast because here I'm going to give you some counter arguments for why I'm not going to read Herodotus and then I'll let you have a chance to talk me into it. And I'm, I'm, I'm being not just Jack Wilson here, but a stand-in for a, uh, a busy, impatient, uh, harried reader. Okay, life is short. Uh, Herodotus is long. There are other books I could read. Aren't there better Greeks that I could be reading? Why not read Thucydides or Plato? Or why not read uh, an actual history book about ancient Greece, a contemporary history book that would give me facts that are a little more reliable than Herodotus? So uh, I don't know how many you chose. Were you? Did you choose five reasons, or how do I you want to go about this? Okay. So what's your number one uh, that you want to talk about for why we should read Herodotus? I went with pure escapism. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think if you if you are stuck indoors and you're tired of hearing about Trump uh, or anybody, you know, in the public eye, you know, Kim Kardashian, whatever, you know, this reading the histories a little bit each day just allows is just pure entertainment yeah. i mean it's um kind of surreal at times yeah the stories are incredible that you know in book one you get the story of king kangelis who has he claims he has a beautiful wife and so he tells everyone like look at my wife she's beautiful and everyone seems to agree except for his lo- loyalist servant most loyal servant gaiji's so he tells gaiji's like hide in my bedroom at night and when my when the queen undresses you can gaze upon her Mm. and then that night he does and the queen catches him Mm -hmm. catches gaiji's gaiji's looking at her and so after the king goes to sleep the queen goes to gaiji's and says now you have gazed upon which you shouldn't have so either you kill the king and you become the king (laughs) Or you kill yourself. 
so I won't give it away. Um, <laughs> you have to read it, but it, you know, there's, there's stories within stories that, you know, take numerous pages, but then there are all these like details, like the animal offerings. I was just shocked. It, you know, the 3000 animals being killed, the, the offerings where they're burning couches mm. <laughs> or burning like purple cloaks. Yeah. You know, it's just, there's, there's all this like Dungeons and Dragons-esque stuff mm, that I love, yeah, like yeah. trap doors and safe houses and yeah. encounters with madmen. I, I just think it, they, there's just pure entertainment. It's hard to just kind of plod through the pages. And I think that's one of the things that really appealed to people is that some people were um, a little wary that it was going to be dry right? because it was written in... 400 bc yeah right <laughs> you think uh he's probably gonna fill it up with a lot of irrelevant detail and he doesn't know how to tell a really good story because he, these ancients are always they just don't have the same sensibility they don't have the same sense of humor and they don't have the same sense of what's important to us yeah and it, in fact it's it, it moves from history to tabloid mm. in an instant mm-hmm and there were some people, some readers who wanted more. I mean, there's a mention of like the festival of naked boys. There's cross-dressing. And sometimes we get a little bit of the story. And then Herodotus will say like, that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a Persian ship commander who's a woman. And she's like incredible, uh, an incredible leader. And she's like defeating all these Greek ships. And then Herodotus is just like, there's more. And then there isn't more. Like he doesn't tell us anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. Well, pure escapism. Okay. Well, I'm kind of on board for that. Although I can think of a lot of other rivals for escapism, but this seems like it's would take me into a world that I wouldn't uh, ordinarily visit. So that's good. What's your number two? All right, my number two was the humorous material. Oh, okay. So give, um, us, give us some examples of that. The Scythians in book four, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, the Scythians were uh, in their favorite tribe. The men go off to war, mm -hmm. and the wives start cavorting with the slaves, mm -hmm. and they um, have sex with them, and they bear children and the children, the men have been away for so long. The children grow up. And um, when the men come back, the children fight the men and say like, you're not, you're not allowed back. The way they hang out with the slaves and win them over is so funny. I mean, there's they're just like, <laughs> they first they give them a lot of milk and then they blind them. <laughs> it's like, and then they have sex with them. You know, this it, doesn't sound necessarily that funny, is it? It's just that it's told in kind of an absurd, it's over yeah. the top. Yeah, I mean, I guess there, there are little parts of it that are um, a little bit like Monty Python, like mm. they're, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the nicknames, like there's a guy named uh, who doesn't really want to fight, but he's a leader of a battalion. And so his nickname is Astromius Astro the Trembler. Oh, right. And it reminded me of, uh, I don't know if when you've last seen the Holy Grail, but Brave Sir Robin. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> and his song where it says, like, he was not afraid to be killed in many nasty ways or to have his eyes gouged out or his elbows broken. You know, the trembler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's not laugh out funny, but I think maybe that's because what was laugh out funny in 400 BC might not be laugh out funny today. But yeah. I think Herodotus is definitely aware that by telling absurd stories, he's got our attention. Right. The The description of Egyptian culture, he's serious for a little bit, but then mm-hmm. he talks about how, you you know, if you happen to have a crocodile, you have to put earrings on the crocodile and bracelets on their front feet. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's just... <laughs> It, it it just wakes you up. I mean, as you're reading it, because you know, yeah. they, like there's um, a Greek tribe that is dealing with a rebellion. So the king sends his right hand man to deal with the re- the rebels. But then he the the right hand man Amasis, you know, gets along with the rebels. So when the king says what's going on, he sends back a message to the king. Um, he sends him a fart. Hmm. Yeah. And then Amasis becomes um, the leader of the rebels and then they defeat the king and Amasis then becomes the king. And then he he takes the golden throne and turns it into um, a toilet. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's done in a very Herodotus is very aware that it has to be woven into the story. I mean, I'm giving you like sort of the bright funny points but it's woven in this way that it's like surprising right well i was with you on the humor although i am kind of famously not a fan of fart jokes but i know i am alone in that so i will uh (laughs) i will accept that it's humorous on behalf of everyone else who seems to i seem to be alone in that uh in that position. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with your remaining reasons for why we should read Herodotus. Okay, we're back. Mike, what is your third reason? I'd say I'm I'm softening, but I'm not quite there. What's your third reason for why we should read Herodotus? So my third reason was the scope. Which, scope okay which is there's so much mm. to cover here but i'll try to hit some of the high points which is it, i mean people think that the histories are about the persian wars mm-hmm. but you actually don't get there until book five there are nine books the books really cover what herodotus considered three continents mm-hmm. which you, you'll like this it's europe asia and libya those were the three continents. <laughs> and right. the, the discussion of geography in the book is is very entertaining. It's, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Danube and the Nile and, you know, the various tribes, the Greek tribes and the, the infighting that went on. Like they when the Greeks were fighting the Persians, there were massive protracted discussions about who would be on the right flank because that was considered like the very honorable flank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you get all this geography, you get all this military um, strategy. Mm. And I mean, it might be the first instance of 
kind of drawing the opponent in and then flanking them that's discussed i mean it, you know it happened several times there's a lot of discussion about the form of government mm. and record keeping and bureaucracy and there's a, a war council um and there's one person who casts the last vote if there's a tiebreaker if there's a tie and to cast the tiebreaker some of the fun of reading the histories is that it's not organized in a in a way that could be dry right there's um, digressions and and they oh contain like yeah. all these uh all and and by scope you mean not just the geographical reach and all the different cultures and all the different societies that he uh, yeah covers I mean, like but all the topics and and uh, he he roams around his mind roams around yeah i mean the the, the there's ample discussion of democracy versus tyranny mm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff really pops out because, you know, I think people read Herodotus, people read a text like this and expect insight and kind of a mm-hmm. glimpse into the way things were. And you, you do get a bit of that Ur text uh, feeling, you know, they, they they talk about like, well, what's the point of invading a, a useless land, a, a barren land? Right. The The amount of invading and warring is mm. incredible mm-hmm. i mean you think that there was nothing better to do <laughs> <laughs> in fact there, there there's a i don't know if i can find it but they at one point i think darius says like i've made a list of countries to invade and this country is at the very top <laughs> i mean it's, uh, i gave you some hints with like the egyptian culture there the depiction of the various cultures is fascinating mm-hmm. um the the translation I read was by Tom Holland. Oh I yeah, I was going to ask if you read the Tom Holland. Yeah, yeah he's a good storyteller. So yeah, and uh, self, sure you were in he, good hands. He's self taught. He, he he learned Greek on his own. Oh, I didn't know that. I was just yeah. wondering about that. Actually, I was thinking maybe he was a a uh, one of those guys who learned it when he was a kid. And interestingly, I I, I exchanged some tweets with him because he's a, he's a big soccer fan. He's an Aston Villa fan and. Mm. My team is Arsenal. And I asked him, why don't you do a translation of Thucydides? And he said, that's too hard. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. That Herodotus is, is more like playful. And I thought that was, that, that, that was an interesting dis- distinction because we're, we're reading Thucydides now. Mm-hmm. And I think one, per, one person has complained and people chimed in and agreed that it's a bit humorless. Yeah. It's one thing that for Herodotus to have made up stuff, like he talks about ants the size of dogs. Yeah. Okay. You know, but it's another <laughs> thing to, to be able to hone in on a detail that I can't help think that it's informed by Herodotus's sensibility, which mm-hmm. includes his humor that is lacking in Thucydides. You know, when Herodotus talks about um, Warcraft and says that this battalion had horses and the other battalion knew the rival, the, the opponents knew that horses are scared of braying donkeys. Yeah. So they line donkeys up to scare the horses. I mean, you take, you you take that with a grain of salt. I mean, it just sounds kind of silly, but it sounds like it could work. But then he says in the very next paragraph that Athenians were one of the first to come up with the idea of running toward the enemy as a tactic of fighting. 
that previously armies literally walked up to each other <laughs> and then fought. <laughs> that the Athenians came up with the idea of running. <laughs> Which, I mean, he knows that's a good detail. Right. You know, he, he's not, he, he, he didn't make that up, but he, it's that part of that sensibility that, you know, I, I, so it's, it, we're reading Thucydides now and I'm, I'm enjoying it, but yeah. I, I think it's just, it's just a different cup of tea, you know? Yeah. I want to stand up for Herodotus a little bit because I had read this just before we started that the mm -hmm. ants that he's so famous for are actually, <laughs> they now believe that he was actually talking about the Himalayan marmot. Uh, wow. Because these are gold digging ants, right? That are furry, <laughs> and and apparently there's a a place where they, uh, I don't know if it's by some river or something, and as they're digging in, they get uh, oh, this is what it is. It's near Kashmir, and the locals can collect gold dust that's thrown up by the burrowing of the marmot, and <laughs> so they think uh, they now think that this may have been what you know. A lot of these stories that he had they're like folk tales and myths and and so on where there's a kernel of truth in them and there's you know it's not just totally fanciful but it can kind of be you can kind of trace it back to something that's partially true yeah i mean there's stuff in there about smoking cannabis and mm. making hemp clothing right and maybe in the 1600s that would have been thought as just ridiculous but where we are today we think oh yeah that yeah. makes sense <laughs> right right okay let's let's so, hear your number four so this is uh maybe the most fun um the originality of violence Ooh. I, I think when you when you <laughs> get to the actual before even before you get to the war which you know i don't know if people have seen the the film 300 which is based on the Frank Miller graphic novel, yeah. the 300 Spartans who developed, who defended uh, Thermopylae against right. the Persians. Um, so Herodotus's histories has all of that. You, you get the 10,000 immortals, you get Leonides and the Spartans and the betrayal. But then you also get the description of Xerxes' army, which was mm. over 5 million yeah. uh, soldiers. Not even, and they, they say... But and not we're not even counting the eunuchs, <laughs> <laughs> and they brought their own concubines, they brought their own animals and pets. Right. Um, but the originality of violence. Uh, I mean, the of course the wars were violent, but there's all this. I mean, forget about Game of Thrones. I mean, there's you know doctors who provide bad medical treatment are impaled, mm. um, messengers. Like I never felt more that this adage don't kill the messenger mm. because in Herodotus the messengers are killed mm. they their noses and ears are cut off it's just shocking the the kind of violence that happens that you know women are strangled so there are less mouths to feed, feed in a tribe mm. you murder rivals children you bury children as a sacrifice to the gods the numbers are important you got to match the the right number of girls and boys you kill yeah um, and is Herodotus shocked by this, or is he just conveying it, or does he find it amusing, or what's his attitude toward the violence? He gets very neutral mm. when he describes this. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, there's no judgment. There's a real scorched earth policy 
of armies. You 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 rape and enslave the women. You you know you take the children. You murder the men. Mm. It it can be kind of brutal. People were remarking on Twitter that some of these were hard to read. Mm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, let's go to number five. Well, I mean, number five is sort of, I guess, back to what I was saying originally, which is the the freshness of voice, because I felt like that was that was my number two. But I I talked about it already. And I just think that I almost felt like you could read about anything. Mm-hmm. If Herodotus was telling me about it. One of the kings dies and they they take his corpse on a tour of the country. Mm. There, there are stories of men turning into wolves. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I think you'd be hard pressed to read more than, the book is divided into paragraphs, short paragraphs. Each page has about six paragraphs. And it, it was hard to go one or two paragraphs without something where you just wanted to like read aloud to, to a friend. Yeah. Uh, I was reading this parts to my daughter and just saying like, you know, listen to this. I mean, <laughs> and she, she, I think after a while she was like, Oh, it's Herodotus, right? Because originally she was, she was like, "What is this? What are you reading?" <laughs> so I, th- I, I think it's one of the best books I've read uh, this year. Oh, right. So okay, well that's good. Okay, so I've got pure escapism, humorous material, the scope, the originality of violence, and number five was the voice. Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about the scope. I think uh, it's... Um, That's the key, how much it covers. Yeah, I mean, the, the stuff that that stands out is the, 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 the treatment of fellow citizens. I think that's... There's, there's a lot of material that's kind of right under the surface mm-hmm. that Herodotus... I guess that's one of the criticisms is like, hey, couldn't he have done a little more digging because he he kind of treats 5000 topics with the same level of you know <laughs> yeah. uh, passion right and w- <laughs> was there stuff about like the treatment of women and citizenry that would be you know interesting the the hoarding of gold and right there there's some there's some material there that you know you really wanted more of i think that was one of the complaints is like oh i hope he comes back to this but then there was stuff that like darius and xerxes Mm -hmm. i mean i was surprised that they probably take up almost 40 percent of the book Mm. right Uh, i mean you really get to know darius and xerxes and you you know you you sort of forget that oh we're from the west we're supposed to be cheering for the greeks yeah And there's this great scene where Darius turns to the Greek messengers and says, can you tell your fellow Greeks that we actually descend from the same people? Mm. Um, and it's in, he traces various ancestors and says, like, here is this one. I don't remember the name, but he's like, here is this one ancestor. And, you know, they beget, begot the Greeks and the Persians. So it's like this profound moment where he's just saying, like, you know, let's not call each other barbarians. Let's recognize that we're equals. Right. Well, Herodotus was born in the Persian Empire, right? In what is today, I guess, Turkey? Yeah, he was born in uh, Bodrum. In yeah. Turkey. Yeah. 
So maybe so, that helped give him uh, the ability to see things from both sides. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're great. I forget what they call Italy back then. The, the maps in the Holland edition are fantastic. Mm. Um, I feel like Italy was called like Southern Greece or something like that. They, <laughs> or Southern Sicily or something. Certain countries really um, <laughs> loom large, like Libya. Yeah, right. Uh, and yeah, France is basically, France and Spain are like Iberia. But yeah, that, I mean, that's part of the fun is all these names that have died out. Right. And the, names, yeah. the names that have survived, you know. Right. Right. Okay. So here's my final judgment. <laughs> I was mostly persuaded. I still needed a little nudge. And the reason why I'm going to go ahead and read it is the Tom Holland angle here. That's pushing me over the edge because I read a book by him called uh, Rubicon, The Last uh, Years of the Roman Republic. And okay. I loved it. And I, it, wow. I've, I've read a bunch of his books now, but none of them, I didn't like any of them as much as I liked Rubicon. That really kind of changed things for me in the way that I understood the end of the Roman Republic and and the movement into the Roman Empire and that it I mean it it's based on the the famous uh, importance of Julius Caesar when he crosses the river but he kind of mm -hmm. goes into what built up to that and why that wasn't necessarily just a an isolated moment uh, but yet you know the significance of it and it's it, it was a very fun book mm -hmm. to read. And very interesting. So I will trust Tom Holland as a good guide to giving me the pros of Herodotus. And I'm going to trust Mike Palindrome, who is giving it a big thumbs up, I guess. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, let me give you two little bits about Tom Holland that I love. You know, he grew up in Salisbury, England, next to the estate of some aristocrat who was constantly absent. Mm-hmm. So he, one day, one of his friends um, threw a ball, and it, it fell on the aristocrat's estate. Mm -hmm. And so they climbed over a wall to to get gather the ball, and they realized there was this amazing wooded area, mm. and there was nobody there. So each day they would throw accidentally, quote unquote, throw the ball <laughs> over the wall right. and play on this estate. And then years later, his mom was just like, "Where do you go to play?" And he, he revealed that he'd been playing on this, like, estate. <laughs> and okay. then the other thing is that he, you know, he, he went to Cambridge and he was in a PhD program on studying Lord Byron when he was fed up mm. with just writing academic papers and yeah. turned to novel writing and right. he wrote a vampire novel. <laughs> right. I remember that. Yeah, that he'd written novels when he came out of his PhD program. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's leave things there with our man Herodotus and our, I guess, our other man, uh, Tom Holland, and our uh, main man, Mike Palindrome. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Mm, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm so glad you joined us for this one. Herodotus, the mighty Herodotus. And for English readers or readers who read in English, you have the Penguin Edition with Tom Holland. To look for, go forth and purchase or put on your holiday wish list. 
and enjoy. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for stopping by and to Maria, the great lover of literature. What a great soul Maria has. Glad she's following her path and that she's rediscovered that love for literature. My thanks to her for brightening our November with her gorgeous email. We are part of the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com and LitHub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. Hang in there, everyone. We're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, but we are still, in fact, in the tunnel. So keep that in mind and stay safe. But keep your eyes on that light. We can make it there eventually. If we keep moving forward together, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Glomer. A Sonic Universe.